Okay, testing one, two, testing one, two. All right, so we got about two minutes yet. Um, it was working earlier. Okay. Shelly Nee. You do what? Ah. Tell me when we're going to go live. Perfect. We're going. We're live now. Okay, excellent. Yeah. Greetings. We ready to start? Let's open up in a word of prayer and we'll we'll jump right in. Oh, actually, let me turn my phone off. I don't want it ringing because if I start praying and it's not off, it'll ring. Father, we bless you. We thank you for this evening. We uh, lift this evening before you as we open your word together. We pray that um, and we look into it that it would be a mirror, a mirror for our soul, and we would not be the same after we have looked into it than we were before. Father, help us, help us to to get a hold of of what it is that you have given to us in this word, and and what did it mean, and uh, uh, it, when it was given, and what does it mean to us? Father, help me to um, to appropriately express and properly teach what it is that 
that you have preserved for us. We bless you and praise you and worship you and thank you for this time to fellowship together. I pray that it would be a mixture of the word and your spirit in our hearts and our lives uh, that would bring change to us. We would not be the same in Jesus' name. Amen? All right. So, uh, we are doing our study. I dare you not to bore me with the Bible. We're on the eighth lesson going through here. Um, as I always, my source is that, that you saw the book cover already. I dare you not to bore me by, with the Bible by Dr. Michael Heiser. And, um, you know, the whole point, the reason why he wrote this book uh, as, as a, a Bible scholar teaching students, discovering that uh, many people... Um, had just heard the same lessons over and over and over and didn't know what are the what are the weird parts the strange parts the confusing parts the difficult parts what do they mean and how do they apply and so he wrote a whole book on this and so we're going through several of them we're not going to do every single one but we're going through several of them that are in the book i recommend getting it and if you have questions as you're going through it and i don't cover them make sure you ask me um love to talk about them and so that's kind of the whole point of the of the study to to understand our Bibles better. You know, they were written not to us but for us. It's the universal word of God for all people, all times, and all places. But it was written to a very specific uh, in uh, groups of people by very specific authors. And so we need to go back and figure out what did it mean to them in order for us to, for us to discover what it means for us. And that's kind of what we're doing. We're taking some of these more difficult, uh, maybe more confusing or strange parts and, and working that. Now, the way the book is written, it's written with a part one and a part two, Old Testament and New Testament. And, um, and if you read it, just, you know, just read the book beginning to end. It, he does all these different Old Testament passages. And then he flips over and he does all these different New Testament passages. But what I'm doing is I'm kind of going one from the Old Testament one week, one from the New Testament, kind of going back and forth. So we're mixing it up a little bit. So you might not, uh, and I'll tell you every week where we're going to go. So if you want to read ahead, um, you, you can read ahead and study that, that spot. Um, all right, so where did we go? I'm not going to do a deep, deep review. I'm just going to hit kind of some topics that we have covered, and you can go back. Um, I was originally doing two a week, but it was getting a bit much, and, you know, we were pushing it. So I'm kind of uh, um, only going to do one a week, which will make the lessons a little shorter. We'll get out here a little earlier. We'll actually have time to fellowship and have some time for discussion. All right, so what we've covered so far in the Old Testament, the subjects we've hit, We've hit their understanding of the, of the cosmology, the Old Testament, which is not our understanding. So if you don't know it, I highly recommend going back and checking it out. We, we, we talked about walking like an Israelite, which was what? Understanding that they were a people of their time. The Bible wasn't written outside of a culture. It was written in the ancient Near Eastern culture and brought that out. We talked about inspiration and how to properly understand inspiration, not not like, you know, someone plugging into Holy Spirit and just writing down uh, a dictation, but, but uh, all that went into inspiring the scriptures. And as a result, um, there, there, uh, there are texts that have, um, uh, we've, we've not fully, we've lost the potential meaning of some of the words. And so there, there are some, there's a few places in the text where we don't really know, uh, the word could mean this, it could mean that, um, but 
uh, and so it's important to know where they where they are so that we build our t- teachings on those places that are clear. We look at what is clear to go back to see what is unclear. And then we looked at uh, the whole subject of um, uh, we, we did spell checking in the Bible. Um, I did that one. Okay, we looked at the whole sur- subject of circumcision, and then we looked took a look at the the story of Moses. Uh, being abandoned as a child in the basket and the meaning behind that. And then last week, we took a look at, uh, or was it two weeks ago? Uh, t- two weeks ago, a tale of courage we never teach. And that is Zipporah circumcising Gershom and then what she actually did with it uh, um, in, in touching Moses and what all that meant and the significance of it. All right. So those are some of the subjects we covered in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we took a look at Jesus declaring war, uh, cosmic uh, geography, um, and uh, um, his concept of burying hell and what that means. Well, we, we looked at guardian angels and looked at the, that the Scripture says we very possibly could entertain an angel and not even know it. We looked at the, uh, how the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. Sometimes, if you look it up, if you look up a quote in the New Testament in the Old Testament, you go, "Why is it different?" When we looked at, they used the, they were using the Septuagint very often. Sometimes they were quoting in a way to make a point, just like you'll hear in sermons today. Um, we looked at Jesus talking about Satan falling like lightning. What did that mean? When was he talking about? And we discovered that, and it was interesting how it actually applies to our walk with him. And then the healing serpent, when he held up the bronze serpent, he, he, he referred to himself as, uh, as a parallel to Moses holding up the bronze serpent. Well, why would that be a, a parallel? And then finally, last week, we talked about what walking on water really means, and we went through that. All right, so um, next week, we are going to look at Dumbledore meets Philip and Peter. Dumbledore now, I mean, who knows what Dumbledore is a reference to? Anybody? It's, it's a Harry Potter reference. It's a, you know, yeah. <clears throat> so it's about a magician meeting uh, Philip and Peter. It's about a magician meeting Philip and Peter. Where does that happen? And, um, and so we're going to take a look at that. And then tonight what we're going to do is... Um, is there really a sin offering? Is there really a sin offering? So uh, I was like, of course there's a sin offering. It says sin offering all over the place. And we're going to see that, but we're going to see what, also what it means. All right, so tonight um, is, a, is out of the Old Testament section in the beginning. It's on page 31. If you want to follow along in, in the book, um, take notes in your book or take notes otherwise. I'm going to put this up. Well, no, I better not. Everybody be staring at that the whole time, wondering if it's going to spill. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, oh, true story. There was a, um, an experienced uh, actress who w- was a theater actress, and she. Um, there was a new actress who was kind of feeling her oats and and you know really being all prideful uh, about who she was. And the experienced actress said, "Listen." I can upstage you and not even be on stage. And the, and the young actress says, you cannot. And she goes, okay. So uh, the, the two of them were on stage together. And uh, the experienced actress had a, a glass uh, with liquid in it. 
And so she finished her line, and before she finished her line, she walked over to the table and put her cup right on the edge of the table like this and walked off. And the whole time, everyone's looking at the cup, and they're not paying attention to the young actress. And she goes, she actually could upstage me when not being on stage. Upstage means to, to get the attention on you um, is to upstage someone. And, and when, you, when, you do, um, when you're on stage properly, you want the attention when it's supposed to be, but you shouldn't upstage when the people's attention are supposed to be somewhere else. So that's what upstage means if you're not familiar with it. Anyway, that was free. It had nothing to do with the lesson. <clears throat> um, is there really a sin offering? So if we, if we turn to the book of Hebrews, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. He says this. He says, sacrifices can't remove sins. He says this in, in, in Hebrews 10.4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, this is, this is written in the writer of Hebrews. However, it seems, if you read Leviticus, that Leviticus says just the opposite. And we're going to look at a bunch of verses. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to kind of hit, I've highlighted some of the sections in red so that we're not spending forever. Because I've got a bunch of verses to look at. So let's take a look, look at, at uh, some verses in Leviticus. So, um, with the bull of the sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. Uh, 426. So the priest shall make atonement for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. Uh, 431. And the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. Sounds like these sacrifices are forgiven sins, doesn't it? Let's keep going. 435. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. Leviticus 510. And the priest shall make atonement for the sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. 5.13, same thing. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed in, in any one of these things, and he shall be forgiven. For, uh, 16, and the priest shall make atonement for him in the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. There's a theme here. Y'all pick up on the theme here? Uh, keeps going here. 5.18, for the guilt offering, the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. So my question is this. Heiser asked this, and I'm passing it on. Do we have a contradiction? Do we have an impasse? Hebrew says, it can't forgive you. Leviticus says over and over, and they shall be, and they shall be, and they shall be. My question is, which one is it? And so, before we jump to a conclusion, let's examine our perceptions of the Old Testament sacrifices. Specifically, this thing that we call the sin offering, that's translated in our Bibles as the sun offering. So we have a certain perception when we read it. What is that perception? So over and over, uh, it's, the Hebrew term is chata. Everybody say chata. Yeah, now, you can, if somebody's sitting behind you, you can wipe your head. You know. uh, yeah, um, it's a Hebrew word for sin or sin offering. And the basic meaning of it is to miss the mark or to fall short. To miss the mark or to fall short. Okay, so that's the meaning of it. Um, the basic meaning of it, in, um, in using a traditional uh, or uh, familiar rendering, our, our typical English Bibles translate this, uh, the way that our tra- traditional English Bibles translate it, cause us to actually misunderstand what the sacrifice is. That's what Heiser's proposing here, I'm in, uh, and that's what um, I'm agreeing with, and if to listen to it, and so that's where we're kind of going. All right. So what I want to do first, we're going to take a look. We're going to spend about five minutes and look at a bit of video. This is from Bible Project. And he's just going to walk us through the meaning of chata or sin and the breadth of this word 
that um, I think will really give a, a, a good um, understanding of the word. Sally, would you turn out uh, the, the first row of lights there? All right, and the second. It's in, yeah, there you go. It worked in rehearsal. Is the video not there? Click on it. Oh, it's on up here. It's just no sound coming up. You have to turn the computer all up. I think you faded it down when you transitioned to me. You have to turn Spotify off. Oh, it's not on my preview. So I'll start it over here. Um, can you click on the, the screen? This is actually the most click on common the of so these bad over. words in the Bible. So let's focus on it for a few minutes. Sin translates the Hebrew. Most people assume. There we go. There most we go. people assume the Bible has a lot to say about how messed up humans are, and that's true. It's also true that the Bible's vocabulary about this topic sounds odd to modern people, using words like sin, iniquity, or transgression. And so the Bible's perspective on the human condition is often ignored or treated as ancient and backwards. This is really unfortunate because through these words, the biblical authors are offering us a deeply profound diagnosis of human nature. Iniquity describes behavior that's crooked, while transgression refers to breaking trust. And sin, this is actually the most common of these bad words in the Bible. So let's focus on it for a few minutes. Sin translates the Hebrew word chata and the Greek word hamartia. The most basic meaning of sin isn't religious at all. Chata simply means to fail or miss the goal. Like when the Israelite tribe of Benjamin trained a small army of slingshot experts, they could sling a stone at a hare and not chata, that is, fail or miss. Or there's a biblical proverb that warns against making hasty decisions because you're likely to chata your way, miss your destination. So in the Bible, sin is a failure to fulfill a goal. But what's the goal? Well, on page one of the Bible, we learn that every human is an image of God, a sacred being who represents the creator and is worthy of respect. And so in this way of seeing the world, sin is a failure to love God and others by not treating them with the honor they deserve. You can see this idea in the famous code of conduct given to the Israelites, the Ten Commandments. Half of them identify ways you can fail at loving God, and the other half name ways you can fail at loving people. And the fact that both kinds of failure are combined shows that failing to honor God is deeply connected to failing to honor people. This is why in the Bible, sin against people is sin against God. Like when Joseph refuses to sleep with the wife of Potiphar, he says, how could I sin against God? In Joseph's mind, failing to honor a human made in God's image is a failure to love God. And so sin is a failure to be truly human, but there's more. A fascinating thing about sin in the Bible is that most of the time that people are failing, they either don't know it, or even worse, they think they're succeeding. Like when Pharaoh wants to build Egypt's economy and protect national security, in his mind, this justifies enslaving the Israelites. He thinks it's good, and he's totally unaware that it's an epic fail. Or when King Saul is chasing David around the wilderness trying to kill him, he thought he was bringing a criminal to justice until he realizes he's the corrupt one. And he says, I have sinned. I am the failure. So sin is about more than just doing bad things. 
It describes how we easily deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. So why are humans such bad judges between moral failure and success? Well, the first appearance of the word sin in the Bible offers an insight. There are these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Their parents had just given in to this beastly temptation to redefine good and evil by their own wisdom, and now Cain is faced with a similar choice. He's jealous and angry that God has favored his brother, and so God warns him, if you don't choose what is good, Chata is crouching at the door, it wants you, but you can rule over it. So in these stories, sin, or moral failure, is depicted as this wild, hungry animal that wants to consume humans, and we know how that story ends. The Bible is trying to tell us that failed human behavior, our tendency towards self-deception, it runs deep. It's rooted in our desires and selfish urges that compel us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others. And it leads to this chain reaction of relational breakdown. This is why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes hamartia as a power or a force that rules humans. In his words, we are slaves to sin. He even says sin lives in us so that the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. So with the word sin, the biblical authors are offering a robust description of the human condition. It's a failure to be humans who fully love God and others. It's our inability to judge whether we're succeeding or failing. And it's that deep, selfish impulse that drives much of our behavior. This is not a pretty picture of ourselves, but if we're honest, it's realistic. This is why in the Bible, the story of Jesus is such good news. He's depicted as the creator become a truly human one who did not fail to love God and others. That is, he did not sin. And yet, he took responsibility for humanity's history of failure. He lived for others and he died for their sins. And he was raised from the dead to offer them the gift of his life that covers for their failures. Or in the words of the apostles, he committed no sin, Yet he carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to our sins and live to do what is right. And that's the story behind the biblical word for sin. Perfect. The other one as well. Perfect. Thank you. All right. So, um... I love Bible Project videos. They're just, they, they get so much packed into one, one, you know, one short little period of time. Now, so, um, sin means what then? To what? To fail, to miss the mark, to fall short. Okay? Now, this is what I, what I was hoping we'd pick up from this. Now, the majority of the time in the scriptures when we see it, it refers to uh, what type of failure? Failure to love God? Okay, yes, failure to love God. Or moral failure. But most of the time, it refers to moral failure. Our failure to love God, our falling short of God's glory, our falling short of God. However, the word by itself can simply mean just to fail or just to miss the mark. And he gave a couple examples in the beginning of how it's used in the Scripture that have nothing to do with a moral issue. Does anybody remember what one of them was? When they were throwing the, the, the stones and they threw the stone and they hit accurately, they said, you did not fail when you threw the stone. You hit the mark. There's, there's nothing moral about that. It's just you're either accurate or you're not accurate. 
Okay, so the word carries with it in the scripture not only the meaning of moral failure, but also its more general meaning to miss the mark, just to 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 fail or to not get all the way there. Okay, that's super important if we're wanting to get this. Why? Because our understanding, when we hear it, automatically we think moral failure. You sinner, you don't you don't you automatically we think moral failure. And so we see sin offering. What do we think? Well, an offering for moral failure. That's how we see it just when those words confront us. Now, what was the actual goal of this thing that is translated sin offering? Okay, so it's labeled sin offering, as we said. And as we think that the purpose of this offering is for forgiveness for moral failures. That's how we would see it simply because that's the immediate connotation that the word sin has for us. However, in Leviticus, that is actually not the case. That's not what's going on here. So what is going on? Here are some of the cases in which sin offerings are given. Bodily discharges. Dedication of a new altar. Completion of a Nazarite vow of abstinence. Let's look at the text. I'll show you where sin offerings are actually given for these things. So here's the first one, uh, Leviticus 15:2. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When a man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. Jump down to verse 15. And the priest shall use them, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord for his discharge. Did the man have a moral failure because of the discharge? No. But yet it's calling it a sin offering. So it can't mean making up for a moral failure it has to mean something else well let's look at another example here it is in leviticus 8 then he brought the bull of the sin offering and aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering and he killed it and moses took the blood and put his finger on it on the horns of the altar around it and purified what the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it the altar to make atonement for it can the altar have a moral failure? No. The altar cannot have a... So it has to mean something other than an offering for a moral failure. Let's look at another case. Here it is in number six. And this is the law for the Nazarite. When the time of his separation has been completed. So it's time of his abstinence. He's been abstinent for a period of time. It's over. He shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and he shall bring his gift to the Lord uh, as a sin offering. Wait a minute. He just completed a vow, and he did it correctly. He did it properly. He did it right. Did he fail morally? No. This isn't a moral failure. So sin offering must mean something different than how we automatically go to our automatic go to. Okay. Um, so what is the real goal of a sin offering? The real goal is something called ritual purification to make something pure. How do you, do you know you can become impure without becoming immoral? Okay, well, we just talked about examples of things that were impure that needed to be uh, purified. So what it does, its purpose, is to guard sacred space. So if we actually understood what the sanctuary is, 
it's, it's, a, it's the place of God's dwelling. It's his sacredness. It's where his holiness is. And so what we want to do is guard that space. It's, it, and, and remember, the tabernacle was fashioned after the form of the real tabernacle in heaven. Okay, in the real, in the in the in the tabernacle. Well, that's not. I shouldn't say real because the one on the earth was real. In the in the the heavenly tabernacle. So, in the heavenly tabernacle, are there guards for the holiness of God? Absolutely. What are they called? Yeah, they're well, cherubim in 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 Ezekiel. Um, uh, Revelation refers to them. They look. It doesn't give them a name, but they're 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 uh, they're the same thing as what you see in Ezekiel and uh, Isaiah. He calls them seraphim. There there are these throne guardians that are guarding the holiness of the holy space. We see this in the text, and so these offerings provide this means, and we're going to see a connection to it in a minute. So, fact. This is a fact. Everyone, but not only everyone, everything in this world falls short of divine perfection. What we mean by divine perfection is divine holiness. Nothing in this world has the divine holiness of God. You know, neither the chair you're sitting on or any other human being. Correct? Fact. No, nothing, no one or nothing in this world is pure enough to enter into holy ground without beaten, without needing to be purified. Okay? So therefore, anyone or anything that's entering into holy space must be purified. This is why the altar had to be purified. This is why Mo, um, Moses purified the entire, everything in the tabernacle before, um, before God, uh, uh, his presence came down on it. The whole process. Look at the last uh, chapter of Exodus. You'll see this. All right. So, to really grab a hold of this and why this is. Now, this video is going to go beyond our subject for tonight, but it really kind of gives us an understanding of it. We're going to take a look at another video. Again, it's a short little video, a few minutes long, um, to talk about holiness. What is holiness? We grab that concept. We're going to marry all this together, and we'll see how this way it plays out. All right, can you hit the lights again, Sally? You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness. Because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. 
And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. <laughs> totally. So it flies over with a hot coal. And then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable. Because normally, if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah, and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development. This time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? We don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. 
And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now. But where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. This time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there, flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity, and bringing everything back to life. You put the lights back on. Okay, so does that was that a, a good way of seeing understanding holiness? Did anybody get a, a new idea of understanding holiness there? Uh, what I really liked um, now, where we are in our study in Leviticus, we're not towards the end yet, right? Those are things that happen that happened later in Leviticus. We're at that place where. When you try to get closer to the sun, what happens? Exactly. And it's not because it's bad. It's because it's good. Right? Why? Because we live in a world that is tainted by sin and death. This world is tainted by sin and death. So by merely existing in this world, we are impure by sin and death. Not morally impure, ritually impure, ceremonially. In other words, we we do not walk around carrying the purity of God. So if I'm going to go into holy space... I have to be purified in order to go in. It's, it's not about what's inside of me. It's about what's outside of me because I'm about to enter into holy space. So I have to be like cleansed, if you will, a type of cleansing in order to go into this. So the better label rather than sin offering would be if we were to call it a purification offering. It's applied to both people and objects. And it purifies them. It makes them acceptable. By the way, that's what the word kosher means. It makes them kosher. They're acceptable. Um, You know, uh, uh, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to prove what is the good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. The kosher will of God. That's That's what that word means. So if I'm going to enter into his presence, I have to be kosher. I have to be acceptable. So I need something to purify me because of what, what is the wages of sin? Death. So I'm in a world that is tainted by the wages of sin. So I need that tainting to come off of me to go into a holy place lest, uh, um, uh, lest I get too close to the sun. Right? All right. So it's not a question... Of, uh, of becoming unacceptable because I've committed moral evil. Of course, moral evil will make you unacceptable. But that's not the, what the question is that's going on here. It's a fact that everything in this world is imperfect. It falls short of God's holy perfection, his holy presence. So the, the ritual reinforced the idea of the complete otherness of God. This, this sin offering, the purification offering... What it does is it helps us understand that God is not like anything in this world. He is completely other, separate, distinct. 
when when Isaiah was in the went into the uh, had that vision and entered into the holy uh, 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 the temple that we saw the in the video, what were the seraphim crying out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He's not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. Completely other, completely separate, completely distinct than anything in creation. In, in, on earth or in, in, uh, uh, or in heaven. And when you have to go through this ritual, every time you were going into the temple where there's this holy space, what is that reinforcing in your mind? I'm not going before something that's common. God is not common. Would that we did not treat God commonly. We should not treat God commonly. We should be bold. We should be confident, but not treat him commonly. Okay. So the sin offering, the blood of the sin offering then, it's used in two places. And how it's used depends on your status as a worshiper. So we'll have uh, uh, one place it's used is for the commoner. The, the common person who wants to come to worship, um, they apply the blood to the outside of the sanctuary. It's applied on the, on the outside altar. It's applied out there. And it, what does it do? It, it permits that worshiper undeserved acceptance to draw near, to worship God in the outer presence of the holy sanctuary. The, the commoner doesn't go into the holy, holy place, and for sure not into the holy of holies. But they can enter into the, the outer court there. They can enter in to be a part of the worship that's going on. But by bringing that sin offering, they are purified to enter into that place. Do they deserve it? No, it's undeserved. It's, it's God's grace that's letting them to enter into his presence, to draw near. The word for offering, by the way, is korban, which the root of that is to draw near. So a purification offering, a sin offering, is that which enables me to draw near, to draw in, to come into his presence. All right. Um, so the second place it's used, it, the second status is, um, remember, it depends on your status, is a priest. And we have two types of priests. We have the, the priesthood, and then we have the high priest. Um, and this blood here is not... Uh, put on the outside altar, but it's taken into the holy place, into the sanctuary. It's placed inside. And what does it signify? It also signifies that this priest, he does not deserve to be in that holy sanctuary. He's not there because he deserves to be. He's there by God's grace, God's calling. God called him to this office. The gifts and calling of God are without what? Repentance. You see, this, this is the way to understand this. Is, that's in Romans, by the way. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. You're gifted and called because of grace, not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it. Now, does it mean you should repent? Yes. But that's the response to the gift and calling, not the means of the gift and calling. Do you see the difference? It's the response. It's a right response. Why? Because God's not common. He's holy. He's other. So a right response is repentance. But the, the gift itself is by his grace. Do you see how all this works together? Is it making sense to everybody? All right. So um, the, the third, I mean, the, the, we, we really see this come into play in the Day of Atonement for the high priest. Once again, the blood is brought where? It's not outside. It's into the Holy of Holies. 
Um, it's done once a year. It's, it's applied to the mercy seat, which is the, the golden cover of the Ark of the Covenant. The, only the high priest goes in there. And it's not because the high priest has greater sins. It's because he has a greater need. Why? Because that's the, the locus of God's holiness. That's the closest you can get humanly to the presence of God. So this is why the blood needs to be brought all the way into that place. Um, it's, it's, it's demonstrates once again, not how great the high priest is, but how holy God is. Everybody follow that. All right. So this sin offering then is not about uh, a purifying for moral failure. It's about purifying for access to God. And because we, when we hear sin, we think moral failure. We don't think the other biblical meaning that it can just mean doesn't it falls short of God's glory, which everything falls short of God's glory. It doesn't ha- it's not simply moral. Um, all right. So what, then what about forgiveness? What about that? How do we deal with forgiveness? Or how does Leviticus deal with forgiveness? How, how does that happen? So let's take a look at that. Now I'm going to quote Heiser here. Um, it says this. If the sin offering of the Old Testament, it didn't purge people of moral guilt, what about the forgiven language? This language, we read it over and over, right? And you will be forgiven, and you will be forgiven. What, what does that mean? What is it saying you're being forgiven if it's not about forgiveness? Well, if let me just give you a little hint up front. If the word sin might have more than one meaning, do you think the word for forgiven might have more than one meaning? Hmm. And you think if we discover that, we might understand. Hmm. All right. So, you know, we, we might ask, what and, and how do we deal with it then if people do evil? How do you deal with that? So if this, if this sin offering isn't sanctifying someone for, moral, for a moral failure, how do you deal with a moral failure? Well, how's it dealt with in Leviticus? All right. So the, 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 word, for, um, the word for forgive, the verb that, it's a verb to forgive, it's, it's, it's salach. Everybody say salach. See y'all Hebrew experts now. You got two, you know, two Hebrew words in your pocket, right? Chata and salach. We're, we're, we're doing good. All right? It's pronounced S-A-L-A flem. That's how you pronounce it. All right. Um, it, it, what does it essentially mean? The essential meaning of it means to be positively disposed toward. That's a big mouthful of a meaning, but let's grab it for a minute. It means that I am now positive, positively disposed towards someone or something. They have become acceptable. I'm positively disposed towards them. Okay? So they are before. They have fallen short. Now I'm positively disposed towards them. What happened in between? Something purified. Do you see the process here? Everybody see that? I want to make sure we're, we're together here. Anybody not see that? All right. So in the context of purification, God now approves of the person or the object entering his presence. That's what it means, and you will be forgiven. Okay? The Nazarite vow is over with. You've been abstinent. Now it makes sense. Before it didn't make sense. Why would he need to be forgiven when he just actually successfully or she successfully completed the vow? Why would it? Well, what it means is now that you 
now the successful completion of it is you have brought this offering. You have entered into God's presence and God is favorably disposed toward you. Oh, I took my vow. I stayed 30 days abstinent. I completed it. I came to worship God as the culmination. I took it before him. So I want to come to the temple to worship. And so now I'm going to enter in. I have a purification offering that, that cleanses me so I can enter in. And I am positively disposed towards God. I am acceptable for being here. I'm not being fixed for a moral failure. I didn't. Bodily discharge, same thing. Everybody follow. All right. So the thing of it is, the same word in other places also addresses moral guilt. You know, because that's, in fact, that's how most of us understand the word to forgive. We use it. It's like somebody, you do something in which you offend someone else. You violate someone else or God's moral law. And you need what? Forgiveness. Okay? And so that also means that. It doesn't not mean that. It just, it's just that because we think of it mostly that way, we miss this other meaning of it. All right. So here it is in Psalm 25. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Pardon, forgive, salach, my, my guilt, for it is great. So clearly, the word is used that way, but it's not always used that way. All right. So in the Levitical sacrifice, the point is not absolution. That's not the point. It's not to be absolved of sin. The point is to make something kosher, to make it acceptable. Uh, so that what? So one can enter into God's presence. You see, it's about relationship. The living God wants to dwell in the midst of his people. Israel is the only people on earth who actually have their God dwelling in their midst. But that sets up some problems. You put the sun this close, what are you going to do? How are you going to be able to draw near to the sun? That goodness is also dangerous. And so God sets in place a system by which they can draw near to his goodness, draw near to, uh, to have that relationship with him. All right. So here's a worldly example of this. Because we do the same things. I was thinking about how do, how do we do the same thing. It's in our subconscious. We do this automatically. And here's an example. So Joseph was in prison. Joseph, the son of Jacob. He's in prison in Egypt. And uh, Pharaoh has this dream. And they call for Joseph. And they say, bring Joseph because he can, prob- he can possibly interpret Pharaoh's dream. So here's the verse. This is Genesis 41:14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. And they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. I mean, this is a, this is a human king. But we would, all, we would all understand it would be dishonoring to a human king to just take that guy out of prison, all um, um, uh, unclean, unshaven, and just bring him into the presence. Because why? Because he sits in a place of authority. He sits in a place of position. And in the honoring of that, what do they do? They clean them up. They get them. And we'd all do the same thing. Think of who your hero is. If you were going to meet your hero, what would you do? You would not clean up. You want to. Make... All right. So this is an earthly example. It's in our psyche. We do these things. This is my point. 
My point isn't to try to compare human examples to God. My point is it's in our psyche to do these things, and it gives us a way of understanding how, if that's true of these worldly things that are so down here, how much more true is that of God himself. Why? Because God is not common. You don't treat what is, co- what is holy as something that is common. All right. So how does the Torah then deal with intentional sin? How does it deal with the violations of the moral law? How does that happen? Well, there's two broad categories. There's categories of sins, of, of moral failures that have no remedy. And then there are categories of moral failures in which uh, the, the violator is required to make restitution. Okay? So um, those that have no remedy, what, uh, what, what does it require? It requires capital punishment. Okay? Um, they're, 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 um, very often it's capital punishment. Sometimes it'll talk about being cut off from the people, being cut off and separated. You've done this, you violate it. There's no, there's no way back. You're cut off and separated. Um, the second one is making restitution, violations that require restitution. And what happens there? The offender, the person who committed the offense is actually restored after they have made reparations to the victim. Once they have made reparations to the victim, now the offender is restoring. So the reparations restores the offender. So it's not about restoring the victim. It's about restoring the offender. It make, how is the offender restored? By making the victim whole. So what did the offender do? The offender did something that offended their, 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 uh, someone else as an imager of God. Okay? And, uh, and in so doing, they uh, now make restoration to, in making them whole. They restore themselves. And um, uh, we could, we can, you can talk later. It's really cool looking at, you know, why is it sometimes um, double and sometimes it's four times or five times to make reparations. And all those things have meaning. All right. So let's have a little discussion time. Ready to have a little bit of discussion time. Um, here's question number one. Is chata or sin always about moral guilt? No. All right. So what, what, might, it, what might it also be about? Missing the mark. Okay, what would be an example of missing the mark that's not immoral? Yeah, the shooting range, right? <laughs> that's right. Whether whether it's a sling or whether it's in Texas, we you know we're going to pull out a rifle or a firearm. Um, that's right. Um, to to miss the mark, that would that would be an example. Um, what about what about the example of the altar? How did the altar miss the mark? Why did it need a, a pure a, a sin offering? Yeah, it's not pure. It's not holy. It's in this world. It's uh, by means by by having the status of being of the world. It's common. It's common. Here's a really good example. Isaac and I were talking about this the other day. So if you have golden vessels and you're in ancient Israel, and those golden vessels, they're, 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 they're common. You can use them for whatever you want to use them for. But there was this time when there was a man named Korah, and Korah didn't like the fact that Moses was getting all the attention. 
And Korah said, I'm an elder in Israel. I want attention too. And so he leads a rebellion. He stirs up a bunch of the elders in Israel, stirs them up into rebellion against Moses. And they all come along and say, look, we're as important as you, Moses. And Moses goes, oh, no, you shouldn't have done this. He says, okay, you guys really think you're important? Here's what you're going to do. All y'all go home. And he said all y'all because, you know, that's the way it is in ancient Hebrew. Um, all y'all go home and you get uh, uh, your censers and you bring incense and all y'all offer incense before the Lord and we'll see whose incense God accepts. And Aaron does it as well. And so they all come back and the only one that was accepted was Aaron. And Korah, this was a, this was a sin for which there was no remedy. Korah was capitally punished. The, um, uh, the elders were punished, not capitally, but they were punished. But what's fascinating to me is all of those elders brought those censers before God. And so God said, they're now all holy. And so take them and smash them down and bring them into the sanctuary. Because they were offered to God, they are now no longer common they're holy. They cannot be used for common purposes anymore. And they all had to be brought into the sanctuary and be re, um, uh, um, reused, purified, reused for holy purposes. You see that difference? Before, they were common. Once it was given to God, it's separated, distinct. Now, that should tell us a lot about us. What did Jesus do? Yeah. And what did he do with our lives? Yeah, he purchased it. He purchased them. And so now we no longer are common and of the world. We are holy. What does that mean and how we should live? Hmm. All right. So that's the first question. What was, what's a better label for sin offering? Purification offering, right. So I'm going to start giving out points. That's 25 points right there. So if you got that, 25 points. So what, what would be, um, why is purification uh, a better term? Well, we it takes us right into the next question. Why is purification necessary? Why is it a better term than sin offering? What does sin offering mean to us? Yeah, do I... Right. We automatically go to moral failure. It doesn't mean that in the text, but that's, you know, you can use sin offering. It's a proper translation of it. But in our minds, we immediately think of the other instead of the other meaning of what chatah could mean. So purification helps us to think of it in a more appropriate way for how it's used in the text. All right. But, but why is purification necessary? Do I... And, and But why does it have to be pro- purified in order to approach God? Why can't we just, hey, just walk on in, walk on in? Hmm. Yeah, and in this case, it's not even about what's inward, because that is a separate issue. The worshiper always had to come in faith. But it's about what's outward, just being in this world. We're not, you know, we're in a world that's tainted by sin and death. And that has to be purified. All right. 
So um, the, the meaning of forgive, it's got two different purposes. What are those two purposes we talked about, the meaning to forgive? What's the normal meaning we think of? When you think of forgive, what are you thinking of? Yeah, par- pardon for your guilt, right? Your par- pardon for your guilt. So that's worth 35 points. All right, but forgive can also refer to what? Yeah, it's, it's purification causing, uh, uh, um, causing to be kosher, acceptable. So it's justification in the sense that it's now acceptable. All right. So now I'm I can be positively disposed toward that person or thing because it's been purified. All right. So forgive can mean your sin, uh, your guilt has been pardoned, but it also can be, be mean the altar. I'm now positively disposed toward offerings put on that altar because that offer, altar has been purified. Does everybody follow that? Anybody with me? Anybody a question on that? I wouldn't say so much declare because it doesn't declare it acceptable. It makes it acceptable. It's not. It's not a. I can now declare it acceptable. It's. It's. It's made acceptable by the offering. The offering then then ritually purified it. Right. That's the, that's the implication there. If it's going into the temple to go into holy space, it's made acceptable for God's holy space. For that purpose. Yes. Yeah, I mean, obviously the moment you leave and you're out in the world, guess what happens? You're retainted. So you need that ritual over again. So every time you come in. Now, do you see, one of the reasons I really wanted to go through this study and look at this study is because most Christians have this thought in their mind. Christians have Jesus. The Jews had the sacrifices. Do you see how that is now a completely wrong parallel? Those sacrifices were never meant to, to take away the sin inside of our conscience. In fact, Jesus was sacrificed outside of the camp. This is the whole point of, um, uh, of the book of, um, of Hebrews. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And in fact, it says this, if Jesus were a priest on earth, he wouldn't be a priest on earth because we have. It says in the, in the, um, in the um, present tense, we have priests on earth who offer offerings. You, you notice, it, it clears up one thing. Here's one thing it clears up. How is it that Paul, in Acts 21, goes into the temple after having gone on his third missionary journey, 25 years after him coming to Christ, teaching and, and you know, writing books of Scripture, goes into the temple and offers offerings. If those offerings were, were if what Christ did was in place of those offerings, how, why is Paul doing that? Because it's not a parallel. It means something different. Isn't that interesting? We don't think that way, do we? 
But yet we look at those scriptures and we don't stop long enough to go, why would he do that? But now we can get this understanding. Now, do those things point to Christ? Well, we saw that in the, in the Bible Project video. Yes, they point to Christ. They point to what he did. In the same way that ritual offering made you pure to enter into a physical um, a tabernacle on earth, the blood of Christ purifies us inwardly so that through his body we can go into the holy temple in the heavenlies. You see, so there's a parallel, but not a replacement. The writer of Hebrews says that. It's doing different things. And we can learn from it and, and instruct us and inform us. But we don't have a temple today. That's why we don't need the offerings. We don't have a, a physical uh, um, building. We have a temple. It's called us. We are the temple. Is everybody, is everybody with me? Any questions on that? All right. So now we've come full circle. We can come right back to where we started. Where do we start? It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. So when we read that, is he contradicting Leviticus for 75 points? Who wants 75 points? No, he's not contradicting, he's not contradicting Leviticus. He's not contradicting the Torah. Um, so go with Heiser's quote here. So the Old Testament sacrifices could not provide release from spiritual or moral guilt. The worshiper always, 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 always comes in faith. The a priority, a priori state of the heart of the worshiper is to trust God, to come into his grace. That sacrifice was not in lieu of God's grace. It was because of God's grace. Um, they merely, do I? Do I? In doing the ritual? Yeah, it could be, but it didn't have to be, which is why the prophet said, I don't want your sacrifices, I want your heart. Because people would come and act the ritual thinking that the ritual itself is efficacious without a heart before God. Yes, this is what the prophets are speaking to the nation. The prophets are speaking to the nation, your heart's not right. Your sacrifices are an abomination because your heart's not right. You see, to, it's not the ritual that caused them to draw close. It was the ritual that was cleansing them outward. It was only faith. We, this is getting into a different subject, but it's why the writer of Hebrews says Jesus died once for all. Even though he died, it, uh, um, you know, uh, 2,000 years ago, 30 B.C., that death on the cross was efficacious for all believers in all time, once for all. Before then, I am coming to God in faith that he will make a way. After him, I am uh, I'm looking back at the way that he made. And all of the people of God are looking forward to the full consummation of it when he returns. You see, it's Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Well, our righteousness is the same way. Righteousness begins and ends in faith. And faith is in the completed work of Christ. And, that, and, and um, the argument I just made about that once for all is, is again, this is, this is a study of the book of Hebrews. And you'll read this. He, he, the writer says it multiple times, multiple times. Once for all refers to all. So, like, the word all means, in the Greek, all. 
All right. Um, sorry, my bad jokes. You know. They merely allowed people to participate in a temporary and ultimately inadequate system while teaching them about God's nature. It was inadequate. Why? Because it was looking forward to Christ, uh, uh, to Christ's work. Only Jesus's greater sacrifice could solve the real problem of our moral guilt before a holy God. And that's when we saw that video of, um, um, you know, the, the amazing miracle of how how can he? Because you know, if you look in, if you carefully read through the Torah, almost everything is when something impure touches it, makes the thing impure, and it has to be repurified. There are just a very few things that work the opposite, that when they touch something, they make the impure thing holy. And we see that example with that coal in the heavenly place with Isaiah, and we see it with Jesus. It's, it's one of the things the gospel's trying to bring out to us. He just touched the leper. Oh, my goodness, you don't do that. Oh, but wait a minute. The leper got healed. And then what did he tell the leper do? Go present yourself to the priest because that's what you do once you're cleansed. So his touching them ritually cleansed them. The woman healed of blood. Go present yourself. She was ritually... He didn't become unclean. He he didn't even... it, It was... It wasn't even his intention to touch her. She touched his fringe, right? All right. So, any questions, comments on any of this? Everybody follow? Um, I think it's, to me, this lesson is super important because it helps us better understand our Bible. How? Because we don't make false parallels. We don't make false reasoning. Um, we can understand texts like, why would Paul go into the temple and keep doing the sacrifices 25 years later? Uh, because he didn't see them the way we have come to understand them, because he understood that the language of it differently. Um, and you know, with the temple's gone, there's, there's no reason to do those things. It doesn't exist anymore. But it does inform and teach us about Jesus, and the writer of Hebrew uses it powerfully to teach us about Christ. Um, all right, next week. Dumbledore meets Philip and Peter. So we're going to look at this magician meeting Philip and Peter from the book of Acts. And, uh, and, and what's behind that story? It's some really, really fascinating stuff. A lot of us might know the, the, the story of Simon the magician from in Samaria meeting up with Peter and Philip. But there's a lot of cool stuff behind it. Some things that we don't um, necessarily walk away with it. So uh, that's what we're going to look at next week. All right. I'm going to close in prayer afterwards. We've got a few minutes. Please... Uh, fellowship with one another and you know get a chance to chat a little bit if you can help me with the chairs and is there anyone here who has a prayer need we need to cover we're all good okay let's close in prayer father we bless you we thank you for this time to to open your word together to to discover what it meant that we can apply what it means to our lives Father, we um, um, pray that it wouldn't simply be about what we learned in here, but what we carry out the door with us. How fascinating your word is. Understanding that what Jesus did, making us holy, not simply outwardly, but inwardly acceptable before you, undeservedly. 
enabling us to draw near into the living tabernacle in the heavenly places through his body. We bless you, Lord. Father, may we learn the lesson to understand these things. Teach us that you are not common, that you are good, and in your goodness you desire relationship. You desire us to draw close, but you are not common. Help us to understand that in the way that we live and inform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Thank you all. Just to, again, greet one another, fellowship a little bit. Yes, sir.